Welcome to Jack Theology. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Murphy, and with my other hosts, Dr. Kevin Young, and we also have our friend and colleague and mentor, uh, Dr. Big Gupta. General nice guy. <laughs> Thanks, DJ, for joining us uh, today. Uh, it's our first guest, first time we've done this. And so we're excited to have Nijay on. Nijay actually was my doctoral advisor uh, for writing my paper. Right. And he loved to put his red pen on my paper. <laughs> I remember these, uh, you know, those days of you, uh, I'm guessing in your basement, and we would be having supervision sessions, I think, with one of your kids putting together Legos. <laughs> that, yeah. That's my memory. <laughs> yes, uh, young kids at that time. And... Uh, I, I definitely enjoyed my time with you, Nijay. Made me a better thinker and writer, so I appreciate that. Um, but Nijay, why don't you tell us uh, where you're at, uh, what your role is in academia, um, and your family, if you want. Let let our listeners learn a little bit about, about you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I teach New Testament at Northern Seminary, which is in Chicagoland, but I actually live in Portland, Oregon. And these guys know that because I worked with them uh, in their cohort when they were at Portland Seminary of George Fox University. So I still live in Oregon, uh, but now I kind of commute teach and all kinds of stuff on Zoom and YouTube. Um, but uh, my family, my wife Amy is a pastor, a marriage therapist, a PTA president, a marathon runner extraordinaire. So she does everything uh, pretty much. Um, and uh, we have three kids. Uh, so we're in the kids driving territory, uh, 16, 13 and 11. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I work during the day and I drive my kids to sports at night. Um, I have a blog, I have a podcast called Slow Theology, I like to write books, and I like, I'm a coffee snob, and I'm kind of a stereotype of Portland because I have an electric bicycle. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I've seen electric bicycles out here more and more, um, so that's, that's neat, and I am also too a coffee snob. Um, so, in fact, yesterday I had a meeting somewhere, and before the meeting, I found the best, most highly, most highly rated coffee roaster nearby to do some work. So, we have that in common. But you are, or have written, a book recently, and one of the topics, or the topic we want to address today with you, Nijay, is uh, this idea of women in ministry. Mm -hmm. um, you, in your blog, I, I remember um, reading your blog weekly, or however often you updated your i think it was 18 part post on <laughs> 22 was it, 22 was in the end i was <laughs> gonna say was it that short it felt, uh, I, I, yeah i have to admit though it was one of the best defenses that i've i, I had ever read of women in ministry coming out of my uber um fundamentalist religious background um i had already kind of moved to the position but you gave me a lot of legs to stand on um, theologically. It just, just, I was like, how do, how, how do we, how do we never see this? I remember those early days, Kevin. Actually, now you're bringing a memory back to mind. I'll tell you a little story behind that blog post in a minute. Um, I remember that I, we were sitting next to each other. Kevin was. Kevin was sitting next to me, and um, I had posted a blog criticizing. The president of Cedarville, the new president yeah. of Cedarville back then, for giving this kind of agenda setting chapel message, basically saying we're going to double down on, you know, kind of hardcore complementarian theology. And I, uh, I wrote this blog post and um, I think you had, you had pointed it out to me like that. You, I think you were, you were, I must've been with you within a day or two of posting that because it, it had crashed some server. <laughs> blog post. It went viral, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm not normally that controversial, but I remember I was listening to that chapel message because just curious what's what it's about. While I was doing dishes, and I almost broke my dishes, that it upset me so much because I knew some faculty members at Cedarville, like Preston Sprinkle and Tim Gombas and others um, who I had you know just highly respected, who are no longer at that institution. But I'll tell you a story about the blog series. I'd written an article on women in ministry, you know, many years ago, 
And one of my friends uh, at a seminary, he took a picture of a student paper that said, as feminist scholar Nijay Gupta says, uh, and I remember texting him back and I wrote, wow, I'm going to have to earn that label. <laughs> so that, that actually started that blog series. I thought, okay, you know what? There are books and there are commentaries, but a lot of that's behind paywalls. A lot of that's behind costs and people are looking for short to the point, punchy, get right to the point, one page, one and a half page reflections because there's so much out there on the other side, kind of the, what I call androcentric, which means focused on men. Uh, the androcentric side, there's so much out there and it's been out there for hundreds of years. And so I thought, you know, something free, something short. And I thought I was going to do five or six. I ended up doing 22 within probably three weeks just because people were so hungry. It was getting a lot of engagement. And, uh, you know, I, I guess one of my reflections is – uh, you know, pro women in ministry scholarship has been around for a long time and in earnest for 50 years. And yet, <laughs> uh, you know, people are just hungry for um, good scholarship that will tell a different story than the androcentric scholarship of many of our youth, where we just were taught focus on men, listen to men, look at men, and, and leave women out of the picture. Part of my book, and we're going to get into the book, but part of it is actually a kind of confession of sins for me. Um, I've, I've heard people say, you know, why should a man write this book? It should be written by a woman. You should get out of the way. I get that. I respect that. We were very careful in asking Beth Barr to forward the book. We were very, if you look at the endorsements, it's all women endorsements. That That's kind of an accident, but I'm kind of excited about it because it shows that I'm trying to show that I'm engaging with a community of women scholars. But I think part of me writing it as a man is to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done in the past to not only neglect women, but to harm them through what I've chosen to do and what I've chosen not to do. Um, so anyway, that, that probably gets heavier than you want to get right at this moment, but it is, it is kind of a mea culpa for me, at least in that introduction where I talk about my story. So you were not always, um, affirming of women in ministry. No, I, I almost hesitate to tell you this because, uh, it is embarrassing, but, um, in college I be, I was, I became a Christian as a 16 year old and I knew nothing about theology, um, seminaries, denominations. And I kind of got caught up in the heyday of John Piper. I mean, we're talking, let the nations be glad. We're talking Christian hedonism. I mean, these were the roaring 90s. And I got, you know, what I was taught in college, which was through Campus Crusade for Christ and other, other groups, was that if you want to be a serious Christian, you read John Piper and Wayne Grudem. I mean, I read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology cover to cover uh, in college. And that was like seen to be hardcore. That was seen to be like, I take my faith seriously. Like I read the reformers. And, um, so I kind of bought that theology. I call it package theology because if you like one part, you just buy the whole package, right? It's like Costco. <laughs> you end up with so much, uh, at a great deal. And so I just bought into complementary theology androcentric theology as part of a package, a John Piper package, um, because it sounds so good. And he's so, I feel like he is genuinely thinks that his way is absolutely the official Christian way. And I didn't know better. Uh, I didn't know there was Wesleyan theology out there, which I eventually discovered. I didn't know that you could be, you know, traditional or conservative or have traditional beliefs about the Bible and support women in ministry. I just thought, Women who want to be pastors are disobeying the Lord. They don't care about scripture. They have a low view of scripture. They have a low view of the authority of God. And they're just following, they're just um, manipulating the Bible to say what they want it to say. That was kind of what I received from, from that uh, specific tradition that I had stepped into without even knowing. And then I went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell and there were a spectrum of views there. But um, I was told by some of my mentors in kind of the PCA world, don't take courses with women faculty and treat the MDiv women students with suspicion because they are following kind of the path to destruction. Um, and I could hang out with the MA students in counseling because that's okay. 
but not the students in the Master Divinity. And then I met my wife, Amy, who was a student, and I was like, she loves Jesus. She loves the Bible. She just wants to follow the Lord. And she's discerning her call to ministry. I'm like, she doesn't seem evil. <laughs> and I started to get to know these women. I started to get to know women faculty. And I started to realize they love Jesus. They love the Bible. They love the church. And they aren't the boogeyman or boogeywoman that I was taught they were. And that started me on a path of studying. I spent, I wrote my first systematic theology paper on why women shouldn't be pastors. And I wrote my last systematic theology paper on why they should be pastors, <laughs> why they must be pastors. Uh, it took me in between about a year and a half of really intensive study in Greek, in Hebrew, in Aramaic, historical context, history of reception, to really create the grounding I needed. But I, I made a pretty radical conversion during my seminary so, days. I mean, I feel like I keep cutting Matt off, but I, like DJ, what for you is like the strongest argument? Like if you had to like, because I know, you know, 22 blocks, but what, like, what was the tipping point? What was the thing for you that was like this, there's no going back if, if yeah. this argument it falls? Yeah, well, let's start with two things. One is there's a push and pull to this, meaning uh, I call complementarian theology or androcentric theology, I call it edifice, an edifice, meaning it's like a building. And I was taught that there were all these bricks to this building that were really solid. And when I studied the issue, it's not that, you know, my mind completely changed at once. It's that those bricks started to become less firm piece by piece. So just take the example of primogeniture, which is the principle that the firstborn is the most privileged. And that is true from an ancient culture perspective that the oldest male gets the inheritance. And so that argument is used for Adam and Eve. Adam is created first. That makes him, you know, I, some people don't like the word superior, but that makes him have more gravitas, whatever. Um, but a couple things to say about that. One is not only is that not stated in Genesis, but uh, the Bible likes to overturn that and give the privilege to sometimes the second sometimes the least likely like david david was the youngest in his family right he was the runt of the group um jacob and esau like you know ishmael and isaac you have all these stories where the younger one ends up being the most privileged so you start taking a brick out there um you know this issue of okay you know all the disciples were men well if you read the gospels the disciples don't look that good on paper i mean they strike the shepherd the sheep will scatter right they're not they're not coming across as the best leaders of all time right and then you get to the book of acts and you start to realize the named disciples are not uh the only important leaders right you got paul thrown into the equation you have barnabas thrown into the equation you have people that actually aren't part of the original 12 that end up being really really important stephen uh, you know, think and, and and so a lot of it is taking pieces out of that edifice, right? That I thought was really solid. Uh, for example, yes, the high priest is a male. Yes, the kings were men. They don't actually come across that righteous throughout the Old Testament or the New Testament. And so you start taking these pieces out, and this edifice starts to get really rickety. Now you asked a good question on the other side, what are the most convincing arguments? This is what my book is about, so we can get into this. But um, I actually start the book with Deborah because anytime anyone brings up anything related to this subject, 99.9% .9 of my answers can come from Deborah. Because here you have an executive leader of Israel. There's no leader of a higher level than the judges in that period who is leading Israel through one of its darkest moments in history. And the husband, Lapidoth, doesn't appear to be in the picture. Um, she is the executive leader. She's the judicial leader. She goes into combat, even though she's probably not a combatant. Uh, you know, and she's the victory song is essentially about her. She became a mother in Israel. And so when people say things like, but women aren't as good at, or women shouldn't. My answer is, can you say that about Deborah? Because if you can't say it about Deborah, you can't say it. You really shouldn't say it at all. So I've heard arguments like women don't make good preachers. 
Um, I've heard women preachers. Many of them are very good, and it's a subjective argument. Women are more emotional. Okay, but why did we choose Deborah then? Right? Oh, women are, and once you start getting down this road of women are, women are, and men are, men are, if you look at the Bible, men have serious problems, <laughs> right? Men have really, really serious problems. And you might say, okay, then men just have to turn their act around. But we already have women who look pretty good overall in the Bible. So I'm not saying it should be that women should replace men or anything like that. But uh, a lot of my arguments that convinced me was the rationale for men pastors only or men lead pastors or men elders or men senior elders, it eventually gets to the place of capability. If it doesn't, it's nonsense. Once we address the capability question, we have biblical arguments and we have cultural arguments. Cultural argument is nowadays we have women CEOs, we have women poet laureates, we have women Nobel Peace Prize winners, right? We can't really say women aren't as smart as men. My wife is practically a genius. Um, on the biblical end, one of the arguments I often use is, you know, Joseph, the father of Jesus, is out of the picture some point probably in his teens or early 20s and who is the most formative figure in jesus life it's his mother who taught him torah who said the prayers with jesus right who's jesus going to turn to with his questions about who am i when he's 28. you know the fact that the mother is following around jesus you know as basically a follower or mentor means that it's her and if she's not capable and wise if she's not a pastor to Jesus, then God's made a huge mistake in making her the key person in his life. So that'll get the conversation started. But those are kind of things that I realize is when we look at the details, things start look different, start to look differently. There's a famous saying in hermeneutics, uh, which comes from a scientist. And the saying is, uh, the map is not the territory. What that means is we use maps all the time, like on our phones or paper maps. We use them to take directions and see things, but we sometimes can confuse the map with the actual territory. And the reality is when we zoom in and we actually step foot on the ground of territory, we realize there's trees, there's curbs, there's all sorts of things here that aren't on the map. And my book is basically saying, you were taught a map of the Bible when you were young, or I was taught a map of the Bible that only had men on it. And when we actually step onto territory, there are women everywhere. So one of my taglines in my book is we sit around talking about what where women can be and what they can do. And what we realize when we read the Bible is women are everywhere and they're doing everything. Yeah, that's good. My, uh, my grandfather uh, was a pastor for his whole entire life, you know, his adult life. And he was – he, I guess, biblically saw – um, he was a comp or a, yeah, complementarian was against women in ministry. But as a kid, I remember th I was like starting to, you know, maybe I was like a freshman in college at Cedarville. And I was like curious about this whole idea of women in ministry because I had seen my uh, grandfather actually put women in leadership roles and have them preach and, and different things like that. So I asked him about it. I said, this doesn't line, line up grandpa. And he goes, well, Matthew, sometimes all you have is women to do the job, and so God wants his work to go forward, so women are going to do it. Um, and so I think what you're saying is it's like I think we all, all three of us grew up in that same kind of building edifice. I, I like that. And uh, and practically on the ground, it, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't line up. And then as you zero in on Scripture and you see women interacting everywhere, um, right now um, – our denomination, the denomination I'm, I'm affiliated with, the Christian Missionary Alliance, we're having this denomination-wide debate over this idea of women in ministry. And good, there, there's a, and I've sent your blog to a lot of friends of mine and pastor friends as we are having this conversation. And yeah, the argument on, I guess, our side who see women being valuable for ministry, sh you know, should be pastors, need to be pastors. Um, we're looking at the stories, and I love your, your title of your book, Tell Her Story, um, mm -hmm. of these women in the Bible. But then the response on the other side is always, you know, the the first Timothy passage, you know, women are not permitted to speak. So how would you respond to that? Like these literalists, yeah. uh, what Paul says in the scriptures. 
Yeah. You know, actually in my book, I just, you know, I, I gave a, I gave a church seminar a couple years ago on this subject and I didn't talk about the prohibition passages. There were about 150 people in the room and I talked about the stories of women. Are you sure and, you want to talk about them right now, Nadia? Cause it would, be I will. A, it would be a great thing though, to say, you got to buy the book to find out about the prohibition passages. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think the future is free. So I think, I think we need to offer things to people, but I've already said most of what I want to say on my blogs which are free. So the book is just, uh, you know, getting more expanse expansion on my arguments. But I spoke at the seminar and there were 150 people there, probably a hundred of them were women. I'm speaking the whole time. These women have big smiles on their faces because they feel affirmed and the men look really concerned. <laughs> and, uh, a group of like 15 men kind of storm me afterwards. And like, what about, you know, the household codes? What about first Timothy two? I realized I can't talk about the subject without addressing that because that's immediately where people's minds turn to. And so I actually do have a section in my book at the end called What About? I wanted the book to be about women's stories, and uh, it is, but I knew that it would be a distraction and it would be unsatisfying to some readers if I don't address their prohibition passages. The first thing I would say is whenever we read the whole Bible, we're putting, t we're putting together a puzzle. So those who are starting with the prohibition passages are going to be throwing out some other pieces of the puzzle, like Romans 16 or, you know, um, Philippians 4, you know, places that don't fit their theology. Um, what I'm doing is starting with the story of these women, and I'm trying to fit pieces of the puzzle together. Um, so when people say you're ignoring those texts or you're, you know, whatever, um, all of us are trying to figure out how to fit all the pieces together. Um, I'm trying to do it in a way that makes sense of what was actually going on in the first century. Um, but uh, what I will say before I get to First Timothy 2, what I will say is um, it's important we get the terminology right about leadership titles because the common line today is women can't be pastors or women can't preach or women can't be elders. Um, and actually the New Testament says none of those things explicitly. So we're all kind of trying to put the pieces together, but the word pastor doesn't seem to function as a leadership title in the first several centuries of Christianity. I think it actually, it emerges somewhere in medieval period, but I don't think it becomes important till the reformation. Um, so the Bible doesn't actually say anything about who can and cannot be pastors. Now you have to do a little bit of hop, skip, and a jump to say uh, a pastor is a kind of elder and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can make arguments about elders. The New Testament actually doesn't say who can and can't be elders. It just says that they were chosen by laying on of hands. So I, I, that, I'm not trying to like set traps, but I am saying we have to get our terminology really clear because when people say the Bible forbids women from being pastors and elders, it actually doesn't. You could make an argument that it forbids them from being bishops. I actually still don't think that is true, but that's the closest you can get. Okay, 1 Timothy 2, what do we do with that? First of all, silence doesn't mean pen drop silence. Like if a woman sneezes, are you going to boot her out of church? Like, no, even the most strict church isn't going to do that. So what is silence about? Um, you know, the language of silence is more about not being noisy or a nuisance, right? The same kind of language is used when Jesus calms the sea, right? Peace be still or peace be silent. Is Jesus concerned about the decibel level of the ocean? He's not, or the sea. He's not concerned about that. He's concerned about the tumult, right? The chaos. And what we see some from 1 Corinthians and other texts is Paul cares a lot about harmony in the church. He wants there to be unity, peace, and harmony. And God's people are known for bickering, right? That's that's what's going on in many of these passages. What I think is happening in First Timothy, and um, you know, I'm writing a commentary right now, so I'm doing a deep dive. What I think is going on in First Timothy is um, there is some false teaching that is spread throughout the church. We know that from the letter; it's pretty obvious. And these false teachers are specifically preying upon women in the church. And I think in some way they're trying to convince them of their superiority over men. Now, you might think that's crazy for the first century. We actually know that there were kinds of movements like this that were kind of almost like female liberation movements. Um, for example, Ephesus, where Paul's writing this letter, 
was known to be founded by guess who amazon women amazonian women hmm. right the most famous women in the in the ancient world for being like anti-men warriors right so the idea of of a of a woman uprising isn't crazy second who was the patron deity of ephesus artemis of the ephesians we already know that from the book of acts great is artemis the, artemis the ephesians artemis the ephesians was known to be a, a single female warrior she was known to be a hunter bloodthirsty um that sort of thing so you combine amazonian women artemis ephesus and you have you know an environment where it is possible for women to be convinced that they should rise up over the men what paul's doing in first timothy 2 i think is not saying women find your place under men i think it's women who are trying to dominate find your place beside men we have to understand the situation or to make sense of what he's saying. Now, you might say, oh, but 1 Timothy 2 says, uh, I do not allow women to have authority. Okay. Normally, I don't do a Greek word gotcha. I'm not that kind of person. But this is one of those occasions where translators have a really hard time with the Greek word behind authority and understanding its meaning. I'm not going to get into it right now. So, Kevin, yes, I'm saying buy the book. <laughs> but there's a Greek word used there that is exceptionally rare. We're talking eight to 12 times in the whole ancient world, one time only in the whole Greek Bible. And that is a really rare word. If you want to understand what a word means, you want there to be thousands of occurrences in Greek literature. And for many words, there are even words like authority that Paul normally uses, which is exousia. This is a word, authenteo. And all I'm going to say right now is it's extraordinarily rare. Scholars have a hard time defining it. But if you go back to the King James, the King James uses, I think, usurp authority or domineer, one of the two. I think that was what was happening is women trying to dominate over men. And Paul saying, I won't let women teach under these circumstances. Um, I think it's dangerous then to extrapolate out to other situations. How do I know that? In 1 Corinthians, Paul assumes that women will prophesy. Prophecy isn't just this thing where you get zapped by the Holy Spirit and you start like convulsing and your eyes turn glazed over and you speak some prophecies from Harry Potter. Like that's not what they meant generally by prophecy. Could you speak some unique word of the Lord? Yes. But in general, I think prophecy was understood as being a mouthpiece for the Lord. The Lord gives you a special message. I think this can happen at churches where you're praying as a pastor in your study or at home or on a run or doing CrossFit as Kevin does or whatever he does to get jacked. But you're praying and the Lord gives you a special message for your church. It could be really general. It could be really specific. That I would consider prophecy. And we know that women were doing that. So if a woman got up, and said, I have a word of prophecy, I think 1 Corinthians tells us that that was okay. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm giving you way too much information yeah. right now, but those texts need to be read in context. I can make a case that they fit into the bigger picture of allowing women to be elders, pastors, and more. Um, that's not gonna convince everybody, but my job is to tell these stories well and make a case for fitting the prohibition passages into them. And does this come from my personal experiences with women today? It does, but how can it not, right? When I see amazing women lead and preach and speak and show hospitality and plant churches and be missionaries and be theologians, how can we not say women have done amazing things then and now? Okay, that's well, my that's my sermon. No, but that's kind of that that kind of leads into you know what I was thinking as you were talking, and you've already kind of answered this, and it might be outside of the scope of of your of your research for this, but one of the classic arguments against a different lens to see you know the Bible and the New Testament specifically as well. Historical biblical Christianity has always thought this. Yeah. So 2000 years, we finally get this right later. Is there any sense that historic biblical Christianity, which I think is a ridiculously <laughs> unfounded and untrue statement, but for those people who use that term, is there any sense at all that 2000 years of, of church history has in any way, shape or form elevated women to be equal with men when it comes to authority, pastoring, eldership, any of these things? Or have well, we misunderstood it? 
one interesting thing that I found is uh, I did a lot of deep dives into patristic literature. So this is theologians like Origen, Ambrosiaster, St. John Chrysostom, um, Jerome, uh, you know, Irenaeus, you know, a whole bunch of these early Christian writers, second, third, fourth century. And they aren't consistent on how they look at some of these women that are mentioned in the New Testament. For example, one of them, and it escapes me exactly which one, I think it was Origen, talks about Junia. And he says, she was not only one of the great students of the Bible, but one of the great teachers. And she's not only one of the great teachers, but an apostle. So not only is, and I think it's Origen, but not only Origen says that Junia is a woman, uh, not only that she's important, but that she's an apostle and even higher than the great teachers of the uh, of the early church. Um, John Chrysostom also agrees that Junia is a woman and an apostle. Um, and what I think has happened, Kevin, is um, in the 1970s and 80s, we have kind of an acceleration and a kind of centralization, almost a monopoly of complementarian theology. So there was, there was, as we see the Council of Biblical Womanhood forming, I think we see this energy moving towards, let's all get on the same page about this in a way that hadn't happened before in history because you didn't have that kind of widespread cooperation. Patriarchy has been around for a long time, right? But there's this almost monopolization of it to turn it into one corporation. Uh, that's not exactly what happened. And I don't think it was some dastardly thing happening behind closed doors. But what ended up happening is you have a kind of image cast of the ideal Christian family and church that gets molded into the 1960s and 50s. And part of my book is to say we can't make the 1950s the model for the Christian church and family. We have to understand what the what Jesus and the apostles actually said and did. And what we see is when someone says go home to women, for every time someone says that, we need to see Phoebe being sent from Cancrea to Rome, carrying Paul's letter to the Romans. We need to see Junia being sent out to do public ministry and getting arrested and thrown in prison. We need to see Yodi and Syntyche, who Paul says, wrestled side by side in my same struggle. We need to see that women were out and about doing public, dangerous front lines ministry. Um, so I want to answer the question, how dare we try to change uh, the views of what's been true for so long? Let's just take the problem of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism has been around for a long time and Christians didn't invent it, but we perfected it. In order for Christianity to justify itself, especially in the fourth century when we have the rise of Constantine, um, you had Christianity now become, you know, the big man on campus, right? Before that, not the official religion, became the official religion, and now they could, now they could go toe to toe with with the Jewish religion, and Christianity becomes a behemoth. And sadly, and I grieve it, Christians pretty much until the modern period said very heinous, very ugly, nasty things about Jews and Judaism. You have some early tractates on, you know nasty things about Jesus. And you have Luther writing on the Jews and their lies, all kinds of horrible stuff. We know what happened with the Holocaust. We know Bonhoeffer and his fight against it. So we're doing a lot of re-understanding of the New Testament. I'm on a translation committee for the New Living Translation. It's my and favorite. I love the New Living Translation. And we're meeting next month to talk about certain New Testament texts you might want to revise. I don't know if I'm allowed to share a lot of that, what we're doing. But we are uh we have about a dozen people that are involved in this meeting and we ask them what we should address and the majority of them mentioned a passage that could be taken as anti-semitic hmm. and that we're going to sit down and make sure that we make it super super clear that that's not what the new testament is doing the new testament is not hating on jews why do i bring this up because we're always learning. We're always clarifying. We're always cleaning up and making better sense of what we're doing. And anti-Semitism is an obvious and easy example to say, we're not going to follow 
<laughs> the patristic writers on this. We're not going to follow the medieval theologians on this. We're going to say that was bad for the world. That was bad for the gospel. I think we can do that with this also, with this issue of women. We can say, we have a long history of patriarchy. We need to dig out the roots of that. And we need yeah. to have a better understanding of what the Bible says. I want to make it clear at the beginning of my book, I'm not trying to do revisionist history. I'm not trying to cut parts out of the Bible. I'm not trying to impose an agenda on the Bible. I'm trying to talk about what's actually in the Bible, which is the stories of these amazing women. I think that's good. I mean, I, as you're talking, I like that framework, the capability, the cultural and the biblical. Um, and I think, at least for me, I'll just speak anecdotally from my own upbringing is like, I was never taught about Junia. I was never taught about these women and Lydia, all these women in the scriptures. Um, because I, I think our cultural patriarchy played so much into how we interpreted this. And like, I agree with you. I don't think there was a backroom deal anywhere, but I think our culture so influenced how we read the Bible and the literal readership to, you know, inerrant, like I'm just going to plain read it. Um, we miss so much because of our cultural, uh, lens that we look at the scripture through. And so I think, um, you know, for pastors out there thinking about this, like a lot of our listeners, a lot of people that interact with this are, are pastors or leaders in a church. And it's like, and they're on the ground trying to figure this out. And it's like, you know, to me, reading a work like you've done, your your research, including that in the conversation is so important to unpack uh, and, and I guess separate our cultural lens from what's actually happening in the scriptures. Um, how would you suggest that like, you know, pastors on the ground, people on the ground, uh, as they're interacting with this issue, how, how would you, what advice would you give them, uh, for dealing with the cultural aspect of this? Yeah. Great question. Because I remember when I was in seminary, I was afraid to read the other side, you know, the, the liberal side, because I afraid it would poison my faith. It's called, I call it the contamination theory. This idea that if I listen to an egalitarian, if I listen to a feminist, it's going to poison my mind. That's a very bad appreciation of the mind God has given us that can be discerning and be weighing. I would say if you are in a church context or denomination where, you know, it would be hard for you to support women ministry and you're maybe even afraid to go down that road of starting to read the stuff, uh, you know, start with some of the gateway drugs, which are reading conservative scholars who are pro women in ministry. Uh, I follow kind of somewhere in the middle, but I would say like Craig Keener. Craig has been so great because he's just widely known as a very bona fide, legitimate biblical scholar, historical context, not a liberal bone in his body. And so for those people that are nervous, oh no, like I don't want to get all liberal like Kevin and Matt. Um, I would say gateway drugs, start with Craig Keener and read some of his work paul women wise ben witherington is another one my colleague scott mcknight have you been following our twitter <laughs> i've known you guys for a long time um, you don't get jacked by being conservative okay um, but i would say like just start with exegetical things that you feel like you know you have common ground in terms of method and then start you know i i think I think just uh, knowing there are quote unquote evangelicals who support women ministry can can deflate some of that fear because some people talk about the slippery slope. You know, all of a sudden now you're worshiping demons and devils and, you know, you're you know, you're praying to the earth like that didn't happen to me. I still love Jesus. I still love the church. I still love the Bible. But I, I think people are who are nervous. I would say start with evangelical scholars. Now, I like to read everything. I like to read mainline, Catholic, whatever. But if, if you just want a place to start, I would start with um, 
exegetically based and oriented evangelical scholarship where you feel like there's a lot of common ground in terms of method. Yeah, I appreciate that, Nije, because um, I think for a lot of people, there's this perception of what liberal theology is and that this topic, as with many, is a liberal theology and that no conservatives support it. And so to get exactly. there, you have to go around the text with a different lens. And what I love about what you've said and, and giving us some other um, some other conservative theologians as well is that you can go through the text and when you do go straight through the text with a conservative evangelical lens and hermeneutic you should arrive at the same conclusion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, th and that's what the way it was for me as I studied the issue, you know, I, I didn't want to deviate and start introducing the Apocrypha or not that that would help you in this case, but I didn't want to start to introduce all these other texts. I want to say what's, what's actually there. You know, a big part of my kind of awakening to all of this is Romans 16 which gets easily overlooked in when we read the Bible on the subject of women, because we focus on Genesis, especially Genesis 3. Uh, we focus on 1 Timothy. We focus on the Gospels with a certain lens of just looking at the disciples. Um, but I remember hearing uh, a set of lectures from Beverly Gaventa, who used to be at Princeton and now is at Baylor, now retired. But she gave these YouTube video. She gave these lectures that are now on YouTube. And uh, hearing her talk about Romans 16 was just amazing because Paul gives this long list of greetings to people in Rome, and it's something you could easily overlook. It just seems like a bunch of names. And she actually drills in and she talks about how many women's name, names there are in this list, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Mary, Priscilla, right, um, Junia, um, Phoebe goes on and on and Paul's commending them for their ministry. And some of the things I found fascinating is uh, in most cases, no husband is mentioned, you know, except Andronicus and Aquila. Um, and in many cases, in all the cases, he uses the exact same wording for his commendation for men as he does women. And the most common commendation, and these are all people in ministry, is they worked hard for the Lord. And for what I know of women pastors, my wife being one of them, is they work hard for the Lord <laughs> the same way that, you know, faithful men pastors work hard for the Lord. I think people think women have some agenda. They want to overturn men or they, I don't know. I don't know where people get these ideas, but I think there's this agenda that if you allow women to be on your staff or to be in your elder meeting, they're going to just uh, find some way to ruin everything. Yeah, well, and I know well, that. I think I know that Matt has a bunch of questions he wants to get to, but you've a couple of times you have kind of referenced that your wife is a pastor. Yeah. And I, as you were just saying that, um, so I often wonder how these theologies affect women's ability to pastor and to do ministry. So from your, you know, from your wife's person, like to show us, show us the, the outworking of, of these theologies that say that the Bible says something it really doesn't about women ministry. How, do, how does that feel to your wife? Like how, how does, what has, what has it been like for her? Yeah. Uh, I gotta say it's been really hard. Um, you know, in her seminary days, just hearing the message either, either explicitly or, or implicitly, you don't belong. You shouldn't be in this classroom. You shouldn't be in seminary. You shouldn't be in a master divinity. Um, so then women have to find kind of workarounds like missionary work or parachurch or being a director of something in a church, you know, uh, which I think is kind of insulting. But because um, to pastor means to be a guardian, it means to be caretaker and women are doing it all of the time. Anyway, that's not what you're asking. But uh, it's been really hard and she's very good at it and she's passionate about it and she's talented and she should continue doing it. But um, just the stories to hear from from my wife and, and her female colleagues, so disheartening, just explicit misogyny, you know, um, neglect, um, lower pay sometimes, not being in the room where important conversations happen. Um, not being put on the preaching schedule as often as other people. I mean, she's had good experience in ministry. She's had bad experiences. So if, if you're one of her bosses throughout the years, I'm not accusing everybody of everything. But 
I would say women have a really, really serious uphill battle to 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 be faithful to their calling to the pastoral ministry. Um, I, are there are safe havens? There are places that women can go and denominations and things they want to be in. Um, but she's had a really a really up and down experience. Um, I'm trying to think how she would express it. You know, high highs and low lows. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that a lot of the, a lot of the, the, what's behind the surface of why some men won't give up is they're giving up power, like their perceived power. Um, I loved how you said there's unity. They're really you're, the scripture is saying women stand beside men and men stand beside women. Um, I think that's a valuable way to look at this because when my dialogue in our denomination, you could tell what's under the surface is. I'm going to give up my power somehow if we allow women to have an equal uh, role as men. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's a fear, but I actually think uh, more is more. <laughs> like more doesn't take away from me. It just allows more opportunity to minister to a world that needs uh, so badly uh, to be ministered to. Um, and so <clears throat> I don't know what your thoughts are on the, the whole power dynamic. Yeah, I mean, no one's actually going to say probably like I'm afraid of giving up my power. But you you see those dynamics with all the scandals we're seeing in churches over abuse of power and spiritual abuse and kind of um, hiding embezzlement, hiding, you know, whatever. And um, so I think the American church especially has power, power issues that we need to go to therapy for. Um, I think, you know, I know a lot of complementarians as you guys do, and, and many of them are good natured, good hearted people, people that I am close friends with people that I know have a genuine heart and spirit. And, you know, you went to, you know, some conservative schools and I've, I've, you know, been in those environments too. You know, not everybody is, you know, thinking or doing the worst. So I want to try to believe the best. Even in those moments, what I would want to say to them is um, there are all these walls we build to prevent women from getting into certain places and to making sure they don't um, – have power and influence in those places. And what I want to say is let's look at the Bible and let's look at the New Testament and see women who were always in the wrong places. <laughs> uh, we find these women in the wrong places. And the Bible seems to be not only okay with that, but happy about those. So just take the example of um, Junia, who's in prison. You know, I did this deep dive into ancient prisons. Um, they're not they're not jails. They're not the modern American jail that has HBO and candy and, you know, sirloin steak Tuesday night. Like it's not a it's not a place where, you, you know, you could just spend a few days and get out and go home, you know, you know, drunk tank or whatever. Prisons were a serious place for the worst of the worst. I mean, this, these are places for serious crimes. If you committed a petty crime and you stole a loaf of bread, you would be beaten or fined or both, but you wouldn't go to prison. Prison were for like baddies. And so some of the reasons that Christians were thrown in prison were basically inciting a riot or inciting civil unrest. And these were seen as a threat to the state. Now, Paul found his way out time and time again. He might have had to use some social capital or bribery money or whatever. He got himself out of it. We don't know about what was going on with Junia, but we know that she was thrown into prison because of ministry, which means she's out there in public. You're not sitting at home sewing and the secret police are coming for you. Secondly, women were very rarely imprisoned. I don't know the percentages. It's really small. Thirdly, Men and women were not separated in prison, as far as we know. So the threat against her life, the threat against her purity were serious. And we get the sense that um, she was being rounded up as a public representative of Christianity. Um, she's in the wrong place in many of our assumptions about Christianity. 
but Paul praises her and he says she was older than me in the faith, meaning she's one of my heroes. Um, so I would want to say to them with our concerns about the where and the how and the power, I would say, let's look again at the Bible and see women like Deborah in power doing a really good job. Now I know Nije, uh, we're almost to the end of our time and I want to give you, you know, the opportunity to wrap up and to say, you know, tell us how, how you can get the book, you know, how we can, <clears throat> how we can acquire it and anything, you know, that's in there that you think it's important for us to know. But I also, th- this is not necessarily on the topic of this topic, but where, like, what's the next big tackle? What's the next big dream for you? I mean, I know you're working on a commentary and all of that, but out in the future, like, if you're like, there's this one thing, this one topic, like, I, I really want to tackle this thing at some point. What's the, what's the next big thing out in front of you? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I think what I end up talking to my students a lot is um, just the nature of Christian discourse. I've been, if you notice some magazine articles I've been writing, I've been writing a lot on Jesus's difficult, perhaps most difficult teaching on loving your enemies. Um, and if you ask, if you just pull, you know, 10,000 people randomly across the United States, and you ask them, you know, I say the word Christian, what's the first word that comes to mind? Love isn't going to be the word. <laughs> Love of enemies is certainly not going to be no. it. <laughs> and yet, as I read the Bible, as I read Paul, as I read Jesus, um, which is kind of my wheelhouse, um, I see such a desperate need for Christians to move away from the righteous indignation that leads to hostility and hatred and malice and find a way to really discern Jesus' teaching on love for enemies. A.J. Swoboda and I, I'm not going to get into it right now, but we wrote a Christianity article a couple years ago uh, on Jesus and Jesus' own experiences of doubt. I do believe Jesus is faithful in obedience. I do believe he's the son of God. So I got to say that for anyone that wants to write me a nasty email. But I <laughs> wanted to talk about doubt because it's a popular topic right now and how Jesus had moments of wrestling with it and still went to the cross, followed God, trusted God. Anyway, that led to a lot of viral mockery <laughs> of AJ and I. And we'd wondered, what is behind the impulse to immediately hate people you know yes there's social media but that still comes you know we're still we still are the people responding to that um we can't blame the the mediums we have to be able to blame ourselves and we started the podcast slow theology to say how do you get healthy physically how do you lose weight you do it slowly you do it carefully you do it methodically you do it with patience you do it perseverance and so the instantaneous criticism and hatred and animosity that I'm seeing uh, is becoming the norm. It comes from a place of self-righteousness. It comes from a place of fear, I think. And AJ and I are trying to discern how do we model a different way that can still be critical and incisive strategically, faithfully, and yet still take seriously Jesus' command, love your enemies. Because Jesus says, you've heard hate your enemies, (laughs) love your friends. And I feel like that's the going Christian messages that I'm seeing right now lived out is hate your enemies because there's a reason to hate them and you're doing God's good work when you hate them. And what a hard teaching to love your enemies. There was somebody who had mistreated me, or at least that's my perception of it. And I wanted revenge. I dreamed about it for weeks. And I was, you know, I reached out to someone who I didn't know very well but who I respected. And I said, what, without naming names, I said, what should I do? And I was hoping she would say, you gotta go public, take this person down. And she said, she said, um, uh, she's Catholic. She said, my, my faith, despite what I'm feeling, my faith teaches me charity to all and to most importantly, to my enemies. <laughs> and I, I reached out to another mentor hoping for a different answer. And he said something very similar. He said, you need the one to be the one to reach out to reconcile. And it was so hard for me to do that. One of the hardest things I've ever done in my life is to send that email to say, hey, we should talk. Uh, what I wanted to do is completely destroy this person. <laughs> That's the the blackness of my heart, right? Um, yeah, and. Good. 
loving your enemies is as nice as it sounds it seems wrong (laughs) it seems so wrong and yet as i think about what's going to actually restore my soul you know i love the word magnanimity or magnanimous because in latin it means uh largeness of soul god wants us to have big souls and we know what small souled people look like if you've seen the recent trump video of him speaking at that funeral of this woman and he just talks about himself like that to me is the epitome of smallness of soul it's very self-centered it's shriveled it's uh and and to be big souled everywhere and for what people what people know about you is that you have a big soul um i gotta tell you guys that i'm strong i'm wrestling with that but the journey that aj and i are on with slow theology um we're not getting results in the immediate but in the long term we're feeling we're feeling a lot healthier Uh, i remember someone telling me you can't expect to lose weight any faster than you put it on and it's so obvious (laughs) but we live in a culture where we feel like i have to respond immediately When, when aj and i did this article we got hundreds of negative tweets messages emails within 48 hours nobody reached out to us and said let's talk let's have a conversation i love you brother nobody uh and all we got was people trying to to take us down to to undermine us because they thought we were heretical and and i'm the lord's really saying gosh we need to start processing a different way that's and, and and love sounds sappy but if jesus could say father forgive them we need to do it there's a quote and then i'll stop but there's a quote i love and it's been attributed to nelson mandela but we don't know who said it um holding on to resentment is like me drinking poison hoping that you will die from it Hmm. and that stuck with me um because resentment and hatred you know martin luther king jr day was recent uh you know he says king says hate is too great a burden to carry i will choose love and i that's my favorite king quote because i know hate and i know hate is a great burden to carry and so my, my my i guess what i'm wrestling with right now kevin is the balance between when and how to speak speak truth speak incisively speak directly and when and how to show love and i think what jesus is teaching me is um your general resting place should be love your enemies and sometimes a form of love for your enemies will be criticizing them but i read somewhere um remember when you criticize that you do it so sparingly that you've earned it you've earned the opportunity to criticize that stuck with me because if you guys have noticed i've changed the way i use social media over the last two three years and i try to be really strategic in in speaking out i don't i don't not speak out and even this book is a form of speaking out but i'm becoming more strategic because i'm realizing the culture that has been created my most famous tweet was actually a very kind of mean-spirited tweet uh in in the name of supporting women in ministry but mean-spirited towards the other side shared thousands of times view you know liked tens tens of thousands of times and i've said to a group of my female students i regret writing that tweet not because of what i said but because of the kind of culture that i was supporting and those women you know who are many of my students were like no 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 we appreciate what you said it's like i understand i understand that and i stand by the theology of what i said but when i buy into kind of a throw throw grenades from a far culture um i'm experiencing the receiving end of that and i know it's not leading to generous conversation so anyway that's more than you bargained for but that's what i got well that's great something we've been talking a lot about on here on jack theology but um dj tell us where you can get our book when does it come out i actually just pre-ordered it as you were speaking so good good you've signed up for your trevors in heaven then um it tell our stories available anywhere and everywhere Uh, i i'm I'm just gonna be honest with you uh it's 
buying on Amazon is great for me because, um, you know, I it, it helps with some of the metrics of how Amazon advertises. But I know some people are very concerned with the ethics of Amazon. So buying it directly from IVP Academic is an option. They would love that. So you can buy it from them. Um, uh, buying it from bookshop.org uh, supports small businesses. And so that would be another place. But if you Google my name and tell her story, you'll find me and find the book. Great. Thanks for joining us today, Nijay on Jack Theology. Um, you too, hopefully you're on the journey to becoming jacked as well as, as well as addressing. We thank you for addressing some of our Jack Theology in our, in our culture. Appreciate you. Thanks, guys. I'm so proud of the work you're doing.